evening. Um, Andrew's, I think, got the PowerPoint up and he's going to press the buttons for me. Um, my name is Lynette, if you haven't met me before. Um, I'm Lynette Teagle, I'm married to Peter, um, and we've got Sam and Maddie's back for the holidays as well. And we've been in um, Bath now for six months, so we're still very new to Bath. And um, we used to be in Oxford, we were there for 16 years. And when you move to a new place, as many of you students will know, I guess, or, or if you've um, moved city before, there is that sense when you move location, you have to find your identity again. And, and we're kind of here thinking, you know, how, how do we present ourselves to people? What, what do people see of us? What are they thinking about us as they meet us? And identity is a, a big issue, isn't it? And we only have to look at the movies to see this. There's always that point in the movies when there is that big reveal. Um, first slide, I think. There is that Luke, I am your father moment when you suddenly realize that the whole of the story in Star Wars has hinged on a relationship you didn't know before. Um, if you are not a, a 1970s Star Wars person, but a more modern person, um, who is the Mandalorian? Is he really just a bounty hunter or is there more to him than that? Um, for some people, um, the question of who is Clark Kent? Why is he this strangely muscular reporter? And who is he really? Um, or who is Gandalf? Is he just a very old man with a very big hat? <laughs> Clearly not. And, and maybe the, the more obvious one from the movies, um, are the Transformers just cars? Or are they robots in disguise? But I guess the clue is in the title, isn't it? And in today's passage, it really does read like one of those moments. Up until now, as we've been looking at the kingdom of heaven, we've seen how the different aspects of God's kingdom emerge in Jesus' ministry. We see, we've seen, we see, we saw right at the start of the series, the, the immense value, the, the treasure that God's kingdom is when we looked at the pearl of great price. Um, Libby talked about the wholeness that only Jesus can bring. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Peter talked about the immense task of spreading this message of the gospel. And last week, the different kinds of responses there are to the gospel. But in today's passage, we reach that point in Jesus' three years of ministry where we have his big reveal. It's like that hinge in the book of Matthew where he says to his disciples, who do you say I am? Now, a bit of a health warning with this passage. When I volunteered to, to look at this passage, I didn't realize quite how complex it was. And maybe this evening as you were listening to it or if you read it through, you were kind of thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I think I felt a little bit like that when I was preparing. Because we can't get away from the controversial nature of this text. The fact that we can't read verses 13 to 20, where Jesus talks about building his church on Peter the rock. Um, as one of the, the reasons that um, the, the, the papacy in the Catholic Church exists. And one short talk on a summer's evening is not really the time for a discussion about the legitimacy of the Pope and whether Jesus was proclaiming that Peter was the beginning of a long line of popes with all that represents in the Catholic Church. But I guess a spoiler alert, he wasn't. But four things um, that we see in this passage tonight, and, and if you have your Bibles with you on your phones or whatever, 
it'd be really good if you can open it up as we look tonight at the sign of who Jesus is in the kingdom of God. And there are four things that I want us to see tonight. The first is that the kingdom of God is based not on opinions, but on revelation. And the second thing, it's not just about words, but about spiritual authority. The third one, the kingdom is not just about the individual, but about the people who belong to Jesus. And finally, the kingdom doesn't come through conquest, but through faithful obedience. So we see in verse 13 that Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And this was a common title that Jesus used for himself. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now the context of this is very interesting because Jesus has been traveling around and he's come to this area called Caesarea Philippi, which was a non-Jewish area. It was actually named for, for Caesar, who was... Um, the the emperor it, so it had a, a, a double um name for the emperors because the, the current emperor philip had decided to name the, the area after himself to distinguish caesarea philippi from caesarea which was in a different place but it was a place where there were other gods being worshipped as well the greek god pan and so it's interesting that here surrounded by um, non-jewish idols and gods Jesus decides to ask this question. Now, having recently fed the 4,000 and done great miracles of healing and deliverance in the presence of the huge crowds, if we look in Matthew 15, and knowing that Jesus would soon begin his journey to Jerusalem and to the cross, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And their answers are those that have been floating around the crowd. They all come from the Jewish people's understandings of the Old Testament scriptures, which they were familiar with, as well as recent events. So they say John the Baptist, who by this time had been beheaded. They say he, he must be Elijah and Jeremiah and others. But they all got it wrong. And only Simon Peter really understood that Jesus was not just another great prophet. He was the real thing. And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, it's important for us to understand just how revolutionary this statement was. The Messiah was the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited chosen one from God, the king who would come to conquer their enemies and bring freedom to God's people who would restore the kingdom that David had ruled over. But also, he says, you are the son of the living God. This sets Jesus on a whole different plane. This was Peter saying Jesus was not only the deliverer that all of Israel had been longing for, but he was intimately connected with the living God. And perhaps he was thinking of the voice that came from heaven at Jesus' baptism. This is my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. But look at Jesus' reply. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So we see in verse 17, first of all, that the kingdom is not based on opinion, 
but on revelation. Because Peter's awareness of who Jesus was was not based on the fact that he had a feeling that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't probably even based on his living for three years alongside Jesus. If, if you've ever had housemates, or if you've been married for any amount of time, you will know that when you live in close contact with someone, it's very unlikely that you're going to come out saying, wow, that guy is perfect, unless he really is. No offence to me. <laughs> but this was something that Peter, through eyes of faith, through a heart that was open to what God was saying, could see. It wasn't a superpower, it was a faith position. So the first thing we see is that our understanding of Jesus cannot be based purely on our own feelings or on opinions, important as those might be, but on all that is revealed to us by God our Father in Scripture and as we respond to him in faith. We can't and we shouldn't move away from Scripture. If we want that full and accurate picture of who Jesus is, we aren't given that option. So how did Peter know? If you look at the beginning of Matthew 16, we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were asking Jesus for a sign, and that's where the title for tonight's talk really comes from. After all this time, I think the people were getting restless, and they were wondering, who is, who is this man? What, what is he doing? Who is this Jesus who has been doing such amazing things? And they might have remembered that in Isaiah 7, God promises the sign of Emmanuel, the virgin shall be with child, the sign of the promise that the people of Israel would not be conquered forever. But we're told that the Pharisees and Sadducees, as they asked, their motives were not born of faith, but of a desire to trick Jesus, to trip him up. In fact, there was no need for another sign because everything Jesus had done up until then had been signs that fulfilled the words of, that fulfilled the words of Isaiah 61, which we remember that Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And so here Peter, who got so many things wrong before and after, got it completely right. With that flash of clarity, he sees Jesus is the one they've been waiting for fulfilling their heritage, their traditions, their rich knowledge of God's promises, and yet overturning all their expectations at the same time. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Why is this so important? Well, we work for, with international students um, in, our, in our day jobs, and uh, we, we spend a lot of time speaking to people from a lot of different cultures and backgrounds and, and trying to explain to them who Jesus is and what Jesus did on the cross and how he changes lives. And people have lots of different opinions. They say he was a great teacher, he was a good man, he was a philosopher, he was a prophet from God. And really those are no different from the things that the disciples reported back to Jesus. But I think it's really helpful what C.S. Lewis says, and most of us will be familiar with this, I think. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And that really encapsulates how we need to come to Christ. It's so important, because as soon as we diminish our understanding of Jesus' identity and character, we fail to see who he really is. And our relationship with him becomes weaker and faultier. And then we start to rely on half-truths that don't really hold water, which give us no power to live differently or to overcome the weaknesses and compulsions that drive us to sin. And then we become trapped in shame, in guilt, in anxiety, in fear. And it just becomes harder and harder to live for him. I don't think it's triumphalism to say that the only way we can live for Jesus is if we daily bring ourselves to him and acknowledge that he is God and only he can give us his spirit who renews us from the inside, who can transform the worst in us into something God-pleasing. And it really is only the Bible which provides these solid, reliable truths that we can stand on. So if you're struggling to live faithfully for Jesus, I suggest you come back to his word. Immerse yourself in God's word and ask him, Lord, show yourself to me through your word. Show me how to live according to your love and promises. I can guarantee you, you won't regret it. Because the second thing that we see in verses 18 and 19 is that Jesus' kingdom is not about words, but about spiritual authority. So in this flash of revelation, Peter demonstrates that he has seen, he has understood who Jesus is. And that brings us to the crux of this difficult passage. As Jesus affirms Peter's response, he says these strange words. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What a proclamation. In these three sentences, Jesus says some amazing things, so amazing, that really Christians of, of different denominations and backgrounds have struggled to interpret them correctly for almost 2,000 years. But again, if you're worrying that I'm going to tell you tonight that Peter was the first pope, then this is why you can relax. You can understand, though, why this interpretation might have arisen. Because basically in the Greek, the words are the same. He says, I tell you, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, Jesus was probably speaking in Aramaic, so the words were rock, and rock were the same. He was saying, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my people. Now, there's something of the, the Jewish pattern of speech here, which we, we can't easily grasp, I think, looking in English. But the use of puns and, and, and um, synonyms, words that sound the same, and were used to affirm a statement strongly. But in fact, Peter was significant in the beginnings of the church, as we see in the early chapters of Acts. So there was something prophetic about Jesus saying, you will be an important part of my church. But Jesus was not saying that Peter was his successor on church, that he was infallible or sinless or any of those other things that are common interpretations. We know that Peter continued to fumble and fail, to get things terribly wrong many times over. In fact, at the end of this chapter, even to the point of Jesus' crucifixion and later as an apostle, he needed to be corrected. And I sometimes wonder, maybe these, this, these were the reasons that, that God permitted these failings 
to be so evident in both the Gospels and in Acts so that this could refute any of the false beliefs that he might be sinless. But this declaration in faith, this recognizing Jesus as the Messiah and giving him his rightful role as Savior and Lord at the center of our lives, becomes the basis of Jesus' church and of the authority which Jesus gives those who believe in him. These words, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you, you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is life and death stuff. This is about power from the heavenly realms coming out of darkness into the light, moving from death to life. It's no surprise that Jesus repeats these words later in Matthew 18, 18 to all the disciples, giving them apostolic authority to proclaim all the truths of the kingdom of God which had already been established so that people of all nations and cultures and backgrounds could come into God's kingdom and live faithfully under God's authority. And we can see those decisions that they made in the early church following the Holy Spirit's leading show how seriously they took that authority that had been given to them. But this gives us also the confidence that as we come to scripture, we're not making things up for ourselves, but we have a solid basis for the truth that we hold. Do we need any other reminder that as we live for Christ, heaven touches earth? Um, I have an aunt in Singapore who has this huge house and when we go over, she'll, she'll have us stay and she'll give us the keys and she says, you know, welcome to my house, your honored guests and your family, make yourself at home, use the place as your own. But of course, it doesn't mean she's giving us ownership of the house. She's giving us the freedom to use all that she's provided for us. She's given us authority in her house. And so the spiritual power that we have is not from us. And if we look in Acts 19 in Ephesus, when, when people who didn't know Jesus tried to cast demons out, it was the demons who said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know of, but who are you? We are children of the keyholder, and we exercise his power as we seek to bring the gospel to those around us. But it is authority that only Jesus gives, because he gives us the keys of the kingdom. If you were here two weeks ago, when Peter spoke on the sending out of the twelve, this was the authority and the power that they were given, and the only source, the only reason they were able to do those things that we are able to do, to bring God's kingdom into our families, into our friendships, into our communities and nations, is if we recognize Jesus' lordship in our lives and the authority he has given us. As the children of God, we bring his power, we yield those keys of the kingdom, we will, we wield them, not yield them. We wield those keys of his kingdom with us everywhere we go to bring Jesus' healing into people's lives, to bring his love, his grace, and his mercy to those who are in darkness. But wonderful as that is, the third thing that we need to see is this is not about the individual, but about people belonging to Jesus. It's wonderful, but it's also pretty scary. And that's why it's vital for us to see that Jesus calls us to be his church. In fact, this is the first and only place that Jesus mentions his church. And I believe he meant not just our little groups throughout our city, dotted up and down the country, but all over the world and right through history. As each individual recognizes and submits to him as king, as the author and perfecter of our lives, 
He draws us into a people, a family, a body which stretches back thousands of years and into the future and all over the world. And his promise is the gates of hell, the worst of opposition, will never overcome his people. I come from Singapore, which is a very small country of about five million people. And growing up, we were always told our country was very vulnerable, we lacked natural resources, and it wouldn't take a huge army to conquer a country which is pretty much the size and shape of the Isle of Wight. Uh, so Singapore has always politically allied herself with the Commonwealth, with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, seeking political partnership with larger countries. And we see that happen all over the world, don't we? But there's an important principle here, because if we are rightly to exercise this power that Jesus has given us, we need to be united, not only for strength, but for accountability and resilience. And that's why it's not enough to be a solitary Christian on your own, or even to be a single church isolated from everyone else. We don't have that option. So if you've ever woken up on a Monday morning, or if you do tomorrow, and you think, here I am going into the office, or to work, or to uni, and I'm the only Christian I know in my department, or amongst my friends, and it's really tough. Remember that you stand alongside brothers and sisters who have remained faithful to the Lord Jesus for millennia. We had a student from Vietnam who became a Christian. She'd never met any Christians from Vietnam all her life. And so for the longest time, she called herself God's only Vietnamese daughter. And she said, I'm going back to my family and they're all Buddhist, but I'm determined to stand for him. But when she got there, she discovered that there are churches in Vietnam and that there was a place that God had prepared for her. And immediately, she was filled with thanksgiving and with hope because she knew that she had others alongside her. So you may be the only Christian in your family, on your course, in your workplace, but you are part of a church that spans history and geography. You're part of a line of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ going back thousands of years and within the tiny groups of believers that we have meeting in Japan or in secret in Saudi Arabia, all the way to the mega churches of Brazil and South Korea, you are not alone. But having said all that, we come to a point where Peter failed to understand because he failed to see that the kingdom comes not through conquest, but through faithful obedience. You see, from that point onward, Jesus began to tell them that he would go on to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of his enemies, to be killed and then raised to life. Now, if you're wondering why Jesus commended Peter for his declaration and then told the disciples to keep it quiet, this is why. Because it becomes clear that Jesus' understanding of God's kingdom was so different and so revolutionary that the disciples couldn't grasp it correctly. Their expectations were still wrong. The time was not yet right for the whole world to know about the Christ. So Peter declares, never, Lord, you shall not suffer, you shall not die, this will never happen to you. And through very loving but very human understandings, the last thing we see that Peter wanted was for his beloved Lord to suffer and die. But this is the crux of the kingdom of heaven and this is why Jesus rebukes Peter, who had been so right, who was now so wrong, and who says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Don't tempt me. Don't put obstacles in the way of what God is doing. 
because what is encapsulated here is the parable of the pearl of great price, which we heard about right at the start of this series. And these are the words we need to take to heart tonight. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. This is the price that Jesus paid in order that we who believe in him might inherit his kingdom. He put down his majesty, his power, his authority, and allowed himself to be tried as a rebel, shamed, despised, executed amongst the worst of criminals to pay the price for our sin. You know, we hear this every week and it, it sounds so glib, but when we think of the tremendous suffering that he went through for us, what a price. And then in rising to new life, he bought salvation for all of us who believe in him and that freedom to live a new life, to be part of his family, to have access to his heavenly authority, even while we live on earth. But that means we can't come to this lightly. We can't follow Jesus wholeheartedly if we cling to our worldly priorities and our human concerns, no matter how well intended they are. The call to discipleship is to deny ourselves daily so that we can follow Jesus wholeheartedly. So what does that mean for us today? When it comes to denying yourself and picking up your cross to follow Jesus, nobody can tell you what that means in reality, except as you listen to God's Spirit. But let's not devalue what Jesus did for us by using the language of a world which uses biblical words without understanding. And I'm sure you've heard things like this before. Um, I have to load the dishwasher every night. I have to take the bins out in my household. I have to get on with my boss. We all have our crosses to bear. Really, that just cheapens what Jesus has done and what he calls us to do. Because taking up our cross involves that daily act of obedience, of submission, to our loving Father who calls us to a deeper life of knowing Him, of trusting Him, since He loves us abundantly and absolutely. Only He can satisfy our souls. Do we know that? Do we believe that? You see, the human heart is so prone to, to selfish independence that sometimes even the good things we have can become idols. And unless we submit all we have to the Lord, even the good gifts He gives, can become snares and traps. I remember as a 20-something at university praying about the future and being challenged. You know, you need to take up your cross. You need to surrender your life to Jesus. And the funny thing, and maybe this is a very common thing, I used to think, what was the very worst thing that God could ask me to do? Well, if I surrender to him, I'm sure he's going to ask me to do that. And really, what kind of understanding is that? of God because he is our loving father. He knows what is best for us. He doesn't call us to follow him in order to torture us, but he has the best for us. So what would it take for us to intentionally live a life surrendered to Christ? And as I finish, I thought it'd be good if we could exercise this 
exactly what we've heard about the kingdom tonight, that as a church, we pray for one another. We could just sit and pray on our own, but I think it'd be really good if we, we turn and uh, instead of mingle till you tingle, maybe share until you tingle and pray until you tingle um, and, and ask God for each other. But as I was writing this, um, I just felt that there are a few things, I guess, some of us here are still uncertain of who Jesus is and we need to ask God to reveal himself more to us and then to press in to that in faith and in openness and, and not in fear. Some of us are, are clinging on to things which provide emotional comfort but are harming our walk with God. And those might be dreams, ambitions, even possessions, which we need to surrender into his loving hands so that we're not holding on so tightly to the good things that we have, that we forsake the better things that he might have for us. Some of us need to commit to living daily in obedience in small ways to overcome habits which are leading us to sin. For some of us, in big ways, with big decisions. But Jesus' kingdom is so much more than we can imagine, and he can do and wants to do so much more than we can ask or imagine. So let's approach him with love and that desire to surrender, and not be afraid that a loving father wants to ask us to surrender so that he can torture us. He is our loving father. So will you turn, maybe in twos and threes, um, and share, and if you're not comfortable with that, maybe pray on your own, or just pray without sharing. Pray that the person next to you will come to an understanding of who Jesus is and be willing to take up that cross and follow him each day.